this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampat sudan is once again caught in a brutal civil war Fighting erupted on April 15th between two military factions leading to the death of more than 400 civilians and leaving around 3700 people injured so far. One of the factions is headed by Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah Al-Burhan, the commander of the country's military, and the other is led by Lieutenant General Mohammad Hamdan Dagalo, who controls a state-sponsored paramilitary outfit known as the Rapid Support Forces or the RSF. The fighting between the two factions has destroyed civilian infrastructure such as airports, hospitals and roads in a country already devastated by years of conflict and endemic poverty. Different countries including India are now scrambling to evacuate their citizens who are trapped in the country amidst the war. With 3000 Indians stuck in Sudan, the government has just started Operation Kaveri to evacuate them. So what has caused this war to break out now? what do the two generals want and what are the implications of this conflict for sudan's democratic transition that was actually underway before this conflict erupted we explore all these questions and more in this episode and we have with us stanley johnny the hindu's international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us once again thank you sapat So Stanley we know uh, that these two generals General Burhan and Dagalo they came together to oust the authoritarian uh, leader Omar al-Bashir after popular protests sometime in 2019 and then there was a transitional civilian government in place which was then overthrown in a military coup in October 2021 So can you quickly take us through what actually has happened since then there was some kind of a international UN backed plan for a democratic transition and a full scale civilian government so what happened and how did this conflict erupt so it's uh, basically what happened was that you know what the sudan sudanese protesters what they called the revolution was actually a coup in 2019 coup in a sense the protesters wanted to uproot the regime so what happened was that the regime sacrificed its head who was omar al bashir and the regime sustained itself because in 2019 see for bashir both the the sudanese armed forces saf and the rapid support forces you know rsf these two were his two tools and he banged on rsf to quell domestic protests and rebellion basically and in 2019 he had deployed the rsf to quell the protests and rsf had unleashed violence of the protesters the infamous khartoum massacre in which hundreds of people were killed by rsf bodies turned up in the nile river but then you know the generals both burhan who is commanding the saf and uh, hamdan dagalo who is better known as hameti who is commanding rsf they realized that even they could not control uh, you know or they could not quell the protests and they realized that the only way forward to sustain their own interests is to sacrifice omar bashir so they posted him and then they negotiated with the civilians as part of which 
you had a transitional government and the transitional government was later replaced with the sovereignty uh, council but the question is that the generals whether they ever wanted a meaningful transition to democracy that is the real question i think they never wanted it and because you saw that in 2019 they ousted omar bashir and they formed a, a you know transition government in which a civilian who was abdullah hamdok became the prime minister but in 2021 the generals joined hands again to stop the transition so here burhan and uh, hameti they came together they acted against the civilian representation in the sovereignty council they sacked abdullah hamdok who was the civilian prime minister and took the reins of the country in their hands so in the new setup burhan became the de facto leader of sudan because he became the head of the new sovereignty the reconstituted sovereignty council in which his hand picked men were sitting and hameti emerged as the number 2 in the council so this was after october 2021 yeah exactly in october 2021 and then you know they joined hands in 2021 to sack the civilian representation of the sovereignty council but after that that was you know the power sharing agreement between the two was actually the beginning of a bitter power struggle because since then they fell apart and because why because burhan wanted to become the leader of post transition sudan or at least the post transition military whereas hameti saw the transition process itself as an opportunity to formalize his authority in sudan see hameti came from darfur he was commanding this uh, paramilitary group and he was the right hand man of omar bashir he was always controlled by bashir so the fall of bashir offered an opportunity for hameti who now turns out to be a very ambitious man because he wanted to script his own rise so he found an opportunity for his own rise when bashir fell and the obstacle was burhan right and whereas on the other side burhan who was the commander of the military and he saw again the fall of omar bashir as an opportunity for himself so in 2021 they joined hands to sack the civilians but after that they fell apart and then both of them they vied for more power but here what general burhan did he sensed that hameti is a powerful rival and he was rising fast he also had you know very influential friends in the region so he burhan reached out to the civilians he tried kind of a you know let's say a, a tacit alliance with the civilian leadership as part of which he committed to transition of power whether he actually meant it we don't know you can't trust these guys but his plan was that he would transfer some power to the civilian leadership and he would be the leader of he would be the commander of the sudanese army post transition and in that army the rsf would be integrated into which means he will be the only military leader this was the plan and hameti on the other side sensed that this would be a threat to his influence so he demanded a 10 year long period for integration of the rsf with the military but burhan said no this has this has to be done in 2 years so fundamentally this is a power struggle between two generals you know burhan wanted to become the only military leader post transition whereas hameti wants to become the leader of sudan and contain burhan's influence so hameti wanted more time for integration burhan dismissed that altogether which at that time it was evident that this would lead to conflict 
and the conflict actually broke out on April 15th because now both sides accuse each other of starting the first shot, you know, firing the first shot. But anyway, whoever started it, we know that now Hemethi and Burhan are fighting each other. Right. So we know that after in the last whatever one year or so, there was this internationally backed plan for this transition to civilian rule. And he spoke about how Burhan also sort of went along with that, hopefully, or we hoping that he would end up uh, as the supreme military leader. So at what stage was this process? Uh, because there was a there was also at the same time in on a parallel track, lots of investments pouring in, which were actually backing on uh, some kind of sustainable peace uh, in the country. I think many of them were taken by surprise uh, when the whole process of democratic transition and a peaceful kind of a period which was expected sort of suddenly vanished and fighting erupted. So how did this plan actually backfire? Was there any proximate cause uh, which led to this? I think the underlying cause is the power struggle between these two. And the thorn uh, in the agreement is uh, the integration of the RSF into the Sudanese armed forces. Or rather, the autonomy of the RSF is being challenged here, which Hamethi was so oh, you know, protective about throughout Omar Bashir's period. Because the peace process or the transition plan we are talking about, which is technically this was on until recently, because in December 2022, the military leadership and the civilians agreed. They recommitted themselves to the transition plan. And according to uh, that plan, they were supposed to sign the final agreement in April this month. Uh, and that plan is that within two years, the military would facilitate a transition into a civilian government and conduct free and fair elections. Uh, and within two years, RSF would be integrated into the uh, SAF, Sudanese Armed Forces. So this is the plan. So this, they were supposed to sign a final agreement in April. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that the fighting broke out in April. Because for Hamethi, if the agreement was signed, suppose the agreement was signed, and this two-year timeline uh, has been institutionalized, then the pressure on him would go up further to integrate into the Sudanese armed forces, which means, uh, you know, RSF would lose its autonomy. So since 2013, RSF has been operating as a state within the state, right? And RSF... Its predecessor was the Janjavid militia. And Hamethi, he cut his tooth in the civil war in Darfur, where the Janjavid militia, the Janjavid actually rose in the 1980s during the civil war in Chad, which is a neighboring country. And the Janjavid, when Janjavid was formed, it was backed by the Libyan leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and they retreated into the Sudanese side. And in Sudan, Bashir was protecting them against the rebels in Darfur. And from 2003 onwards, when the civil war in Sudan escalated, Janjavid was directly backed, armed, bankrolled by Khartoum, and they committed a lot of atrocities. There were serious allegations against them. And Omar Bashir himself, you know, has been convicted later on. He was convicted for crimes against humanity, but Hamethi was not, or Burhan was not. So the military regime protected themselves. That's why I said they sacrificed Omar Bashir to protect their own interests. So what happened later on was that, you know, you had Janjaweed and RSF grew out of Janjaweed. And from 2013 onwards, RSF has been very particular about its own autonomy. It was operating as a state within the state, uh, even when Bashir was around. And once Bashir was gone, RSF or 
Hamilti realized, I mean, Hamilti became a man of his own. He doesn't have a force anymore. And he is commanding this parallel military structure. So now that is being threatened because he is being asked to integrate into the Sudanese armed forces. I think this was the trigger. Right. So, but, but uh, it's still, uh, I mean, he's taking on the might of the entire uh, country's army, right? Which has got uh, fighter planes and, you know, bombers and all that. Whereas this RSF is like maybe 70,000, 80,000 soldiers. The Sudanese army has got like maybe 300,000. They've got air power and all that. So, is it like an equal battle or uh, do we can we expect the Sudanese army to sort of win this and maybe there can be a peace once the battle ends or is it like going to be a protracted conflict? So, Sudanese army, yeah, controls the skies. That's true. But the problem is that Sudan has witnessed several civil wars. And for Hamethi, Darfur is his base. And he has thousands of militiamen ready to obey his command. So, the question is, yeah, uh, it looks improbable that Hamethi could defeat the Sudanese army. But at the same time, he can pull the country, drag the country into another civil war, which is hurting everybody. And there are reports that he has already retreated to Darfur, which means, you know, the question is whether the Sudanese army, armed forces, could defeat RSF. It may not happen. So this is what is making the conflict much more complicated, in a sense. Sudan is now on the, is on the brink of another civil war, and this could drag on forever. So by doing that, Hameti is again, he is protecting the autonomy of the RSF. And as part of a future peace agreement, he could protect his own interests. So that could be the plan. So, yeah, it's true that uh, the Sudanese armed forces look stronger. They control the skies. But at the same time, RSF also has heavy weapons. They have the loyalty of thousands of fighters, which means that the fighting could go on and it could erupt into an all-out civil war because the RSF has been spread out. It is there in Darfur, it is there in Khartoum, it is there in uh, northern Sudan. So it could be an all-out civil war across the country. So such prospects are there. So the question is whether RSF would be able to defeat the Sudanese army. I think the question is whether the Sudanese armed forces would be able to defeat the RSF and bring in order, which looks unlikely at this point of time. Right. So, uh, Stanley, uh, we I wanted to actually also talk to you about uh, the strategic significance of uh, Sudan because there are lots of media reports which indicate that quite a few international players are are playing a high-stakes game. I mean, I, I understand uh, that both General Burhan and General Dagalu are backed by different foreign powers. We know that the UAE is highly involved with one of them at least. And there's also Egypt, which has some something going on with the dam. Then there is Russia's Wagner Group, uh, which is handling some mines uh, possibly in Sudan. And then Turkey is involved with the Red Sea coastline uh, being uh, an important strategic location. And then, of course, the US is always there. So can you talk a little bit about what is uh, what are each of these actors playing for? What is their angle uh, in this entire scenario in Sudan, which is a country of 45 million, much of the population lives in poverty. But then you've got all these heavyweight uh, strategic uh, players involved in this conflict. Can you talk a little bit about each of them, please? Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, it's location. It is also resource rich. It's a big country. I think 
all this matters because it is it has a vast let's say cost line which means for the shipping lines sudan whoever is controlling sudan would be controlling the shipping lines on the red sea which opens into the arabian sea which makes it uh, you know geographically or geopolitically an important country and secondly it has gold mines and it it, it also has this uh, fertile nile region which the gulf countries uh, you know they use it for farming uh, for example the uae and saudi arabia has been buying up huge swaths of land to produce food crops and animal feeds such as alfalfa you know which is crucial for raising cattle so especially in the last few years and in 2022 the uae agreed to invest some 6 billion dollars in sudan which includes building a new red sea port which means the uae will have access again to the shipping lines and uh, the uae also purchased all of sudan's legally exported gold in the first half of 2022 according to sudan's own records which amounted to some 1.32 billion dollars uh, for the for egypt you know as you mentioned uh, egypt sees sudan or whoever is ruling sudan as an ally against uh, Uh, Ethiopia which is building a dam and if Ethiopia goes ahead with the dam Egypt thinks that that would you know create water shortage problems for millions of Egyptians so it wants Sudan's help or you know cooperation in taking on Ethiopia when it comes to the United States the United States is wary of the relationship between RSF and the Wagner group and also see uh, the Abraham accords Uh, were announced in 2020 2021 in 2020 2021 means burhan was in power in sudan but bashir fell in 19 in 2019 so burhan came in and burhan's rise to power opened some kind of opportunity for the united states as well as the israelis to engage the sudanese so as part of the abraham accords sudan became the fourth country the others being you know the uae bahrain morocco and sudan these four countries agreed to normalize relationship with israel whereas on the other side the second in command in the sovereignty council is rsf and rsf commander hameti uh, is offering protection to the gold mines that are linked to prigozhin yevgeny prigozhin who is the commander of the wagner group so the united states is worried that wagner is exporting gold illegally from sudan the wagner linked companies and using the money to fund the war in ukraine and some of these companies linked to prigozhin were sanctioned by the united states as well as the european union just a few months ago so rsf ties with wagner is a cause for concern for the united states so egypt is backing al burhan wagner has economic ties with rsf and the united states is worried about rsf ties with wagner and the uae has made billions of investments in sudan so it has interest in stability in sudan and saudi arabia for saudi arabia rsf had sent its men to fight in yemen on uh, you know alongside saudi arabia against the shia houthis which we we discussed this problem in our last podcast so saudi arabia also has very close ties with rsf and hameti has wonderful ties with the uh, Uh, you know the libyan leader uh, khalifa haftar so haftar is again a renegade general who is uh, supporting libya has two governments right after it was 
liberated by NATO. Uh, so one government is in Tripoli and the other government is in Tobruk. The eastern government is in Tobruk and these two governments are fighting each other. And the Tobruk government is backed by, you know, the Libyan general Khalifa Haftar. So Haftar and Hameti, they have very close ties. So apparently there were reports that Haftar had sent armed shipments to Hameti before the fighting broke out in Sudan. And there were also reports quoting American officials that Wagner has also offered to send weapons to Hameti, which he hasn't said yes yet. But, you know, this shows Wagner is also ready to get involved in the conflict. And Khalifa Haftar, it's a very complicated picture. But imagine Khalifa Haftar, when he launched his own civil war in Libya, attacking the government in Tripoli, Khalifa Haftar was directly backed by Wagner and the UAE. So Wagner, UAE and RSF were together in Libya. So this is the picture of Sudan today, right? You have Burhan backed by Egypt, and you have RSF backed by Khalifa Haftar and Wagner. And the UAE also, UAE and Saudi Arabia have also created close ties with the RSF, whereas the United States has an interest in preserving the regime of Al-Burhan and checking the influence of RSF because of RSF's ties with Wagner. So it's a very complex web of geopolitics. It is at the center of this complex geopolitical entanglements. Sudan currently is. This is what is making the Sudan conflict a very complicated one. Right. So do you think uh, there is uh, scope for something of this entire conflict developing into, into, into what, what has been happening elsewhere in the region, a kind of a proxy war between bigger powers? Because as you said just now, uh, Burhan, there are two military factions. One of them headed by Burhan, you are saying they are backed by the US and Egypt, or if not explicitly backed, at least they enjoy their support or sympathy. And the other group, RSF, has got the backing uh, clearly of Saudi Arabia, of the Wagner group and of course the UAE as well if they have got so many investments and so on. So uh, is it likely to develop into a proxy war because on the one side you have Russia, on the other side you have US? So if, let's say that if fighting didn't de-escalate, if uh, both sides continue to fight, I think the possibility, the immediate possibility is that the conflict, you know, slipping into another civil war Sudan is no stranger to civil conflict, right? And the involvement of other countries, other powers in this conflict also makes it prone for a proxy conflict. So that possibility is always there. And Hameti, if you look at Hameti's statements, the interview he gave to Al Jazeera immediately after the fighting broke out, he says uh, that the regime of Al Burhan is supported by Islamists. So he is actually referring to Omar Bashir's supporters, the Islamist sections within Sudan. So Hamedi is trying to drum up support of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, who you know consider the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood-linked groups as a threat to their own interests. Khalifa Haftar in Libya was also fighting this crusade against the Islamist-backed government in Tripoli. So Hamedi is trying to build a coalition on this course saying that this government is a dangerous government backed by Islamists and you have to support me. I have to take Sudan into my own hands. This is his narrative. So as of now, what we know is that all these countries, they have their own interests in Sudan, but they are more or less sitting on the fence. 
we don't know whether Saudi Arabia and the UAE have offered direct support to MAP, but Egypt has apparently offered support to Burhan, but it is state-to-state level cooperation. So, but if other countries also get involved in it, uh, you know, for example, if Amethi says yes to weapons from Wagner, because Wagner has to protect its own mines, its own interests, and Wagner has huge influence, Wagner has built huge influence in Africa, from Central African Republic uh, to Chad to Burkina Faso. Uh, we, we discussed it in another podcast. Uh, so Wagner has uh, entrenched itself deeply in the region. So if Wagner offers support to RSF and RSF agrees that, the, the character of the conflict could change. So the best possibility I think everybody has is to bring this conflict to an end at the earliest. Bring the two generals to the table and make them talk, find some kind of a power-sharing agreement. Uh, otherwise, you know, the danger is that this could slip into another civil war. And uh, if it falls into a full-scale civil war, the possibility of a proxy war is always there. But, you know, the real tragedy is that until a few months ago, everybody was talking about Sudan's transition into democracy. That possibility was, it at least looked probable until a few months ago. But now what we are talking about is a ceasefire between the two fighting generals. Because I think the prospects for a democratic transition, that is no longer there. That is the real tragedy of Sudan. Right. So, uh, Stanley, I mean, uh, uh, I was under the impression that the civil war is already uh, underway, but you you have sort of, you've been saying that it could develop into a civil war and so on. This Al-Buhran's army has been doing bombing campaigns on, uh, on RSF positions. They've been bombing their airports and stuff. So, why would you say that civil war is going to start? Isn't it already a civil war? I'm just trying to clarify. Yeah, I think it is still in a very early stage of the conflict. I think there is still possibility to bring these two together and end the fighting. Because when I say civil war means what I meant was that all-out fighting across the country, not just in Khartoum, but also in Darfur and in other parts of the country, in Port Sudan. So that level of fighting hasn't happened, I think, now. And also there was a lull around Eid. Now in fighting, there was a lull. So, I, you know, it's not clear whether both sides are ready to fight a prolonged war. That's what I meant. And uh, fighting is also now confined to certain pockets. And there is also a possibility to bring them together. So once it becomes a full-scale civil war, it could go on, like in the case of 2003, when Sudan witnessed its past bouts of violence. That would go on for years, if not decades. So that's what I meant when I said a breakout of an all-out civil war. And if that happens, you know, if uh, the possibility of bringing peace or bringing them together for talks, if that has passed, then it could turn into a proxy war. Then all these bigger powers would involve themselves in a greater deal in the conflict. Because... If they think that there is no possibility for immediate peace, then they have to protect their interests. And they will try to protect their interests through their proxies by sending weapons, money, by sustaining the fighting. Then it, it would become a proxy war. And if it becomes a proxy war, I mean, as we just discussed, all the great powers, bigger powers are involved in this fighting. And if it becomes a proxy war, that would further be detrimental for the Sudanese people, one third of whom are already dependent on aid for food. 
Right. One final question, Stanley, before we uh, wind up. So coming to uh, coming back home to India. So we have started this operation Kaveri to bring back uh, the 3000 odd Indians who are trapped there. So is this the only thing India is concerned about here? I mean, can you talk a little bit about like what is at stake for India in the largest sense geopolitically? Where does Sudan fit in in our scheme of uh, strategic interests? And how is this evacuation sort of going on right now? I think the primary interest is to get the Indians out of Sudan because I think, I mean, now there is a lull, but the fighting could escalate and then it would become difficult for everybody, including Indians. So the focus should be on getting the Indians out. Otherwise, if you talk about the larger relationship between India and Sudan, India has made some investments in Sudan, I think, in 2019. It was estimated that India had made some $3 billion worth of investments in Sudan, mostly in the energy sector. So, of course, India would like to protect its interests. India's ONGC Vidish Nigam Limited and as well as the Greater Nile Petroleum Corporation. Corporation. So, they had some tie-ups and India has taken a minority stake in some of the energy projects, etc., etc. So, you know, secondary concern is to protect your investments, your assets in Sudan. And largely, from a geopolitical point of view, you know, Sudan is, it is geopolitically, or if you look at geostrategically, it is at an important, its, it's location is very important. Uh, it is the bridge between the African region and the Arab region. And it, it sits right on uh, the Red Sea uh, shipping lines. It has vast gold resources, gold mines. And also, it has its stake in the global energy basket. So, any disruption in Sudan, prolonged conflict in Sudan, would upset markets, would upset, it can make, uh, you know, prices again go up, and it could have economic impact on India, as well as other countries. So, I think these three concerns are there. Beyond this, India doesn't have any major geopolitical interest, but it has economic interest. And like other countries, it also has an interest in stabilizing Sudan because of Sudan's own importance and the disruption Sudan's violence could cause on global shipping lines as well as prices, etc., etc. And India has to get its uh, citizens out of the country, out of the conflict. So let's say that these three are the broad concerns of India. Right. I mean, it's such a pity that a country which is rich in uh, natural resources and it's got these fertile plains, uh, you know, on the banks of the Nile, you know, which which have been sort of bought up and can also be used for agricultural uh, productivity and development. And in this kind of a situation where you have a country that is rich in resources and the people are poor and the last thing it needed was a civil war and now we are in the situation where there is a big danger of a protracted uh, conflict taking place. Because Sudan's army has little little regard for human rights, the welfare of its own people. It's infamous for its violence and it's greedy for power. So I think that is the reason for the condition of Sudan. And it is the same, the infighting between two factions of Sudan's armed forces are now. But when you say Sudanese army, you mean the SAF or you mean the RSF? Both, both. RSF has been institutionalized. It may not be part of SAF, but it is part of the Sudanese state. There was a law uh, introduced by the parliament after uh, RSF was formed, which said that it would it would be part of, uh, you know, one of the arms of the Sudanese state, but with autonomous character. So I'm saying both. The SAF, when, during the civil war, 
SAF would send the helicopter gunships first and would do the aerial carpet bombing in Darfur. And then RSF uh, paramilitary troops would move in and commit crimes, including rapes, killing civilians, torturing, uh, setting villages on fire. So in, in 2010s, they worked hand in hand. Janjavid did the same thing. Janjavid and the Sudanese armed forces did the same thing. So basically, both are known for their atrocities. And they have scant regards for fundamental basic freedoms, human freedoms. Right. That's not a very optimistic or a happy point to be making as we conclude this uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Stanley. Hopefully, uh, there will be some kind of a sanity uh, that will come in maybe from international actors who do have, at the end of the day, a lot at stake, not just uh, a peace and stability, but also their investments, uh, which depend on peace and stability prevailing over the longer. And thank you so much, Stanley, for talking to us, for sharing your understanding and insights about this developing conflict in this region. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.